From the newsrooms of The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald, this is Please Explain. I'm Michael Bachelard. It's Monday, November 28. We had an extraordinary result in the Victorian election over the weekend. Premier Daniel Andrews won a historic third term in Parliament and increased potentially his margin of number of seats from the previous election, which had been described as a landslide. It went against the prediction of many of the pundits and surprised a lot of people, including both political parties. Today, to talk about it, I'm with The Age's political reporter, Paul Sakal. So, it was a really interesting election. Much bigger win to Labor. Let's talk through the major results. What happened? What happened was there was a significant swing against the government that everyone, all the pulses and the two major parties predicted would happen. The swing was about 6% off their primary vote. They went from about 43% to around 37%, which is broadly within expectations of all the major pollsters, or at least within the margin of error. What was not foreseen was the fact that the Liberal Party would fail to capitalise on that swing at all and would really not advance their primary vote, at least not in the areas where they needed to advance it. In fact, on the figures yesterday anyway, the primary vote, Liberal primary vote went backwards yeah. by almost a percent. Very marginally, but yes, it did go backwards. They had massive swings towards them in the west and northern suburbs of Melbourne, um, in kind of lower socioeconomic areas where Labor has massive margins in their seats where people maybe have voted Liberal for the first time in their lives. And this is kind of a trend we're seeing across the Western world now, where traditional working class areas where there used to be a a high proportion of kind of unionised blue collar workers are now shifting towards conservative parties. They vote more on perhaps culture and faith rather than their economic interests. So the Liberal Party does see those areas as a place where they can win and pick up swags of seats in future elections, but they're not there yet because they're so far behind in these seats and they may not even be there in the next election. There's kind of two and three election strategies in some of these seats, but where the Liberal Party needed to win seats in the eastern and southern suburbs and in some of the regions, they failed to do so. Actually, that's not quite right. The Nationals did do really well in the regions, but the Liberal Party in key marginal seats where seats usually flip and kind of decide election results, the Liberal Party went backwards. A decade ago or or so, certainly under the Kennett era, Melbourne was divided. It was red on the left in the west and blue on the right. That that blue ring of seats has virtually gone now, hasn't it? There's seats like Box Hill, uh, Bayswater, places that the Liberal Party should own, went to Labor in 2018 and have stayed there, sometimes with increased margins. It's fascinating. This isn't the first election where we've seen this trend. We saw it in the federal election in May. The blue seats are effectively in the outer ring of suburban Melbourne and in the regions. The inner ring of Melbourne where lots of white-collar professionals live, lots of public servants live, lots of people who stayed home during the pandemic and didn't mind lockdowns that much because they saved some money. They saw their kids more. They kept their jobs. These people were not as frustrated with the last two years as some of the people in outer suburban Melbourne and perhaps in the regions as well, where there are more casualised workers. There were people who had to be out there on the road and weren't able to be insulated from from the effects of lockdowns. And just back to that point about the Liberal Party going backwards in some of these key kind of middle ring suburbs like Box Hill, Bayswater, Glen Waverley, the places where they really need to win seats to form government. Without those seats, because there's so many of them, and they really are average, median seats, a lot of seats reflect the demographics in those areas. Labor lost some primary vote in some of these seats, but the Liberal Party lost between 8 and 12% of their primary vote in these seats, which is extraordinary. And the Liberal Party vote went towards minor parties like the Freedom Party, like the DLP, 
like family first. So all of these kind of fringe right-wing parties, which were where candidates were running really, uh, who were very animated by the Labor pandemic laws and the lockdowns. Ironically, this group of voters who were really frustrated with Andrews and who the Liberal Party tried to capitalise on through running advertisements on vaccine mandates and Andrew's kind of dictatorial style, that's their words, not mine, these people actually did not flow to the Liberal Party primary vote. They went to these minor parties. So the Liberal Party will be thinking about this result and pondering the question of whether it was the wise move to actually try and court some of these fringe right-wing votes. Well, in fact, the idea was, I guess, to peel off the fringe right-wing votes from Labor and put them in the Liberal column. Actually, they peeled them off from the Liberal Party and put them into the, um, into the fringe column. Yeah, it turned out they couldn't win these voters and because they moved away from trying to win that critical mass of votes in the middle, they weren't able to capitalise on the swing against Labor. So there was a lot of commentary before this election about how the Greens would go, how the Teals would go and the Independents. It looked like uh, for a while there that Labor would, would be assailed from all sides by this kind of minor party vote. It didn't really pan out that way. It looks like the Greens probably got one more seat than they started with uh, and the Teals have got nothing. Can you talk us through that? There was one potential scenario on election night that would have been catastrophic for the major parties. And under that scenario, if the Greens had a really, really good night and the Teals had a good night, there would be no Labor or Liberal MP who held any of the seats of either Melbourne itself or any of the kind of seven seats that wrap around Melbourne, which would have had huge implications for the major parties being able to form majority government going forward. Because once those seats turn independent, it's really difficult to win them back. But the Greens were only able to pick up one of the two or three they really targeted, and the Teals won none. In the case of the Teals, there was one key factor that was really the most obvious factor about why they would not have the same success as they had in the federal election, and that was the fact that there was no Scott Morrison running in this election. They weren't railing against a really unpopular conservative leader who turned off a lot of voters in the inner city. We also had donations laws that massively curtailed the amount of money they could spend, and their candidates were not high profile. Their media cut through was just nowhere near what it was in the federal election. On the part of the Greens, um, a really interesting factor that I think we need to kind of look at as to why it occurred. No one expected this in any way, shape or form, but the Greens lost about 8 or 9% to the Victorian Socialist Party in the seat of Northcote. Uh, the Green primary went backwards significantly and the Victorian Socialists, who really weren't a feature of any media report in before the election, did supremely well. They did really well in Footscray as well and in Richmond. So the Greens will have a lot of questions themselves about why they weren't able to replicate their federal momentum in this campaign um, and it's not easy to answer why that happened. Although they have done quite well in the Upper House, it seems like we'll have more Greens representation in the Upper House at the expense of some of those preference whisperer kind of generated minor parties on the right of the spectrum. It looks like the Upper House is going to be quite progressive. Yeah, it does. It looks like we might have two uh, legalised cannabis MPs who have a pretty obvious agenda. It looks like there's going to be four Greens MPs, which takes them back to about where they were before the last election. And as you say, the Glen Drury kind of preference whisperer group of centre-right and libertarian MPs have almost all failed. A couple of his people will get up. I think the Shooters and Fishers will remain there, but the Liberal Democrats will go, uh, who are kind of a libertarian group. Uh, Sustainable Australia will go. We might get a one or two Animal Justice Party MPs up there. So for Labor to pass legislation, it looks like Labor will have 15 seats out of 44 with the four Greens with the two legalised cannabis MPs that takes them into the low 20s. So there might actually be a progressive voting bloc which enables Labor to get some potentially 
controversial and progressive legislation through without needing to deal with kind of some of those right-wing players that we assume might get in there. Although in saying that, I think the Democratic Labor Party, which is the former Liberal Party MP, the radical right-winger Bernie Finn might get in. Adam Somurek will not. Um, So it's going to be an interesting upper house. And I think in terms of the Greens winning back their seats, it's really a good result for democracy because their vote share means they deserve those seats. The fact that they only had one in the previous parliament is a function of the fact that our upper house is fundamentally anti-democratic. Let's talk about the big themes of this election. And I don't think you can go, you can talk about the big themes here if you don't mention Daniel Andrews. He was obviously the towering figure of uh, Labor's campaign, but he also became the central figure in the Liberal Party's campaign because they felt that he was so divisive and unpopular that by focusing on him, they could win support. So what about Daniel Andrews and, and what role do you think he played in this campaign? The Liberal Party certainly thought they were on to a winner by making this campaign solely about him. They were absolutely convinced that a referendum on him would go their way. I think there's a lot of people in the Liberal Party now questioning how much of the opinion of the kind of radical, fringe-dwelling part of society they took into their own thinking and whether or not they had a solid enough understanding of kind of median, mainstream opinion of the Premier. And as you said earlier, in the middle ring suburbs of Melbourne, it seems that people might not necessarily like him, but they respect him and they respected the tough decisions in lockdown to to impose lockdowns and that kind of thing, something that people outside Victoria find very hard to understand. Absolutely. I mean, the result vindicates that view. The news poll on the night of the election showed that even though Daniel Andrews is a divisive leader, he had about a negative two net favourability rating, which means that there's about the same amount of people who like him as dislike him. Matthew Guy had a negative 23, I think, net favourability rating, so a, a fundamentally more unpopular leader, which makes it very difficult to win votes in the middle ground when the person selling the message is actually a more unpopular leader than the guy you think is deeply unpopular. So I think there's a lot of questions to be asked about the Liberal Party strategy of making this all about one man when that man is, yes, as you say, not the most popular leader in the world, but John Howard wasn't either. There are many political leaders who are not loved but respected. And apart from lockdowns and being tough and that kind of thing, uh, Daniel Andrews has cultivated this brand. He was emphasising this again uh, on election night of getting things done. Uh, you know, the level crossing removals, the you know, th- those kinds of policies, building stuff and making them happen, not just talking about it. In that context, his big policy was sort of renationalising to some extent uh, parts of the power, the, the electricity system with a kind of government-owned state electricity commission. That played right into his brand, didn't it? Yeah, it did. And it allowed them to sell different messages into different parts of the community that wanted different things in the energy market for the seat of Morwell, which Labor didn't end up winning, but seats like Morwell in the outer suburbs and regions. Andrews could use this renationalisation of the SEC to say, we're bringing back kind of public ownership, we're creating apprenticeships, we're bringing back secure work for young tradespeople. That's a great message to sell into working class communities. At the same time, the SEC policy could be used in kind of just suburbia to say, we're going to bring power prices down. It's a kind of spurious link. It's not link. It's not clear that it will bring power prices down in the long run, but he could say that it would. And then in the inner suburban seats, in seats like Richmond and Northcote, there were billboards all over the place saying, we're bringing back government-owned, renewable, clean energy. So it allowed the government to kind of micro-target communities in a very sophisticated way. It did a lot of things for the Labor Party that the pollsters thought were, um, were benefiting them. Let's turn to the Liberals now, because they also tried micro-targeting, didn't they? On one hand, uh, they were trying to sell a message that they were pro-action on climate change. They had a net zero target for the first time. They went with a big hospital spend, lower transport fares, that kind of thing. 
but at the same time they had ads out there talking about how we quote unquote were out on the streets protesting in the in the freedom anti-vaccination sort of space so their micro-targeting didn't work quite so well it looked to me contradictory well, the odd thing about that micro-targeting is you're not meant to let the whole electorate see those kinds of very niche ads that you're putting out into one community. So the idea for that kind of anti-vax ad, if you like, was to push it out into certain groups. Um, I was talking to an advertising person. So the, the way you could do this is by putting out an ad like that into, for example, the Fox Sports website because you're getting young men who might be more amenable to that type of message. But in the case of this certain um, kind of anti-vaccine lockdown protest ad, the Liberal Party actually gave the ad to the Herald Sun and the Herald Sun wrote a story about it. It then got coverage across media and then it got seen by people in electorates where they didn't want this message seen. It made them look like they were playing footsie with extremists. Exactly. And the Liberal Party's kind of facing this revolt where there's this small five, perhaps more than 5% of the electorate which are flirting with minor parties on the right. The Liberal Party thinks it's absolutely crucial to keep these people in the tent, and it is, but they fail to do so. And the cost of kind of courting this vote is that you might lose some in the middle. The Labor Party is facing the same revolt where it's losing a lot of support from young people to the Greens on the left. But at this stage, and the federal result shows this as well, Labor's much more able at this stage to keep their voting coalition together and to have a coherent message that works for enough voting groups to retain a primary vote high enough to win. The Liberal Party across federally and in Victoria struggling to do that. What does the Liberal Party have to do? I mean, that's a really big question, but surely they have to think about who they are, like start root and branch. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, most importantly, it needs to start thinking about how to win votes off Labor. That is where the bulk of votes are. It's among millennials and voters who are just coming onto the the voting roll. Boomers vote Liberal. There's no huge issues there, although some are splitting off to the right. But the biggest number of votes to be won, as is always the case in Australia where compulsory voting exists, is in the middle. And the Liberal Party is going to face a, a tough decision this week about who to lead their party. I think the final two candidates will be John Pesuto, who's kind of this urbane, smaller liberal from Hawthorne, who many of us in kind of the more progressive media believe is the best hope for the party because they need to try and win that mainstream vote. But the Liberal Party room, if you did the numbers today, I think perhaps would vote for the suburban policeman Brad Batten, who's a much more kind of hairy-chested conservative who may not be the best hope for winning kind of those mainstream voters. So there's going to be this litmus test, as Chip Legrand, our colleague, wrote today about which direction the Liberal Party goes in after this leadership ballot. So what lessons can we draw from this for a sort of a national audience? An important factor in this election that the New South Wales Liberals and Federal Liberals were looking at were whether the Victorian Liberal Party was able to hold those seats under threat from the Teals. The Liberal Party is going to win back Hawthorne, which is a massive result for the party. It's one of their traditional blue ribbon seats. And they put a massive effort into doing so. They put a massive effort into doing so. They're going to retain the seat of Q, which was at significant risk to go into the Teals, and they're going to increase their margin in Brighton and Sandringham, and they're going to retain Caulfield. That is a really important result for the Federal Liberal Party in Victoria because there are federal seats in those areas that they need to win back from Teals. It's also a really important result for the New South Wales Liberal Party because they're going to have the same threat from Teals in their election in March. I think there's about six candidates who have announced they're going to be funded by Climate 200 as well and the wealthy donors to that group. And the fact that the Victorian Liberal Party was able to put forward an environmental environmental policy and kind of strip some barnacles off the party's policy platform that were kind of socially conservative on issues like same-sex rights and these kinds of things. And the fact that there wasn't this massive revolt again at a state level that we saw at the federal level is a positive sign for the Liberal Party's ability to be relevant in these areas again. One final quick question, Paul. Daniel Andrews has promised to stay on for four years. Will he? I'm not 
going to try read his mind, but I think it's very unlikely that he's going to go to a fourth election. There are lots of signs in terms of the, the way the government is using her image in advertising and social media and just her general level of prominence in the government that there will be a handover to the Deputy Premier Jacinta Allen at some point. That handover would have been made more or di- more difficult if the Premier's authority was dented at this election by a poor result, but it absolutely has not been dented and there'll be very little pushback among Labor MPs if he does want to create an orderly transition to his favoured deputy, Jacinta Allen. So I think the question is when rather than if that occurs. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Batch. Today's episode of Please Explain was produced by Debbie Harrington with production assistance from Hannah Mills-Turbot. Please Explain is a production of The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. If you enjoy the show and want more of our journalism, subscribe to our newspapers today. It's the best way to support what we do. Search The Age or smh.com.au forward slash subscribe. I'm Michael Bachelard. This is Please Explain. Thanks for listening. Listener.